One day, Jesus was standing beside Lake Gennesaret when the crowd pressed in around him to hear God's word. Jesus saw two boats sitting by the lake. The fishermen had gone ashore and were washing their nets. Jesus boarded one of the boats, the one that belonged to Simon, then asked him to row out a little distance from the shore. Jesus sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he finished speaking to the crowds, he said to Simon, row out farther into the deep water and drop your nets for a catch. Simon replied, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but because you say so, I'll drop the nets. So they dropped the nets, and their catch was so huge that their nets were splitting. They signaled for their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They filled both boats so full that they were about to sink. When Simon Peter saw the catch, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Leave me, Lord, for I am a sinner. Peter and those with him were overcome with amazement because of the number of fish they caught. James and John, Zebedee's sons, were Simon's partners, and they were amazed too. Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will be fishing for people. As soon as they brought their boats to the shore, they left everything and followed Jesus. The word of the Lord. So we continue in this epiphany narrative, Jesus making God's news known to the world. And as he does, I can't help but think of the maybe the most famous passage in Scripture, maybe the first one that you ever learned, John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. And you're seeing Rockin' Roland Stewart, the rainbow wig guy. He's actually in prison now, which is really sad. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a long story. You can find that out for yourself. I think for most of my life when I've thought about or known this verse, I thought about it like quantitatively, like God loved the world so much that he'd give up his only son. And I think that's true, but I don't think that's all of it. As, as I have children of my own, I can't help but know the enormity of and the risk and the generosity of sending a beloved child into a world that can be so harsh and dangerous. I, I, I get that, and the, that the quantity of that is, is, is always like right in front of my eyes. But I think I've also come to realize a little more of it on like, quanti- or on like qualitative terms, the quality of that love. There's a certain quality to God's love that he would send his only son. God loved the world just so, just in this particular way, not through magic or impersonal means, not by like anonymous philanthropic ventures, not by reprogramming the suffering out of the world as if we're robots without agency or by wiping the slate clean and just starting over. But God loved the world just so, just so that he'd send his son 
to rescue us, to save us, to heal us, to restore and rebuild. God would send his only begotten son. Just so. This was hardly also a new means for God to act in the world. We remember the story of Israel, that Israel is also kind of known as God's son. If we read Psalm 2, you get language like, today you are my son and I have become your father. Or also think of Abraham when we talk about God's children and God's family. Abraham and his wife Sarah would leave where they'd known God would resurrect their old barren bodies towards the creation of a family that they couldn't conceive of, either conceptually or physically. They were an endangered species, and they, through a laughable birth, Isaac's name means son of laughter. It was so silly how God acted. They'd make a family more numerous than the stars in the sky in the sand on the ocean shore. They would be blessed to be a blessing to the world. God loves the world just so that he sent his son, the culmination of this blessing, not for death, but for, for life by faith, to create a family. So with all the stars and all this sand in kind of the background, shouldn't be that much of a surprise that today's epiphany story happens on a seashore. And I wish that I was better qualified. I wish I could better identify with the story. I am from Florida, but I can't catch anything. I should have consulted with my sister-in-law's friend, Blake, who is much more of a boater than I ever was. I, Though I was from the beach in Florida, I couldn't surf because I couldn't catch a wave, and I didn't fish because I couldn't catch fish. I had a nose surgery because I couldn't even catch a baseball very well. Um, but this, this passage is engrossing just at the seashore with Jesus in these, these men. Jesus, it seems like he, he beelines through this crowd straight to the sinners, straight to the, the, the ones least likely to even know that they were sinners or think that much about that. He passes through and he passes by the folks who are like sitting on the front with like worn ribbons in their Bibles, like ready, ready to learn, ready to sit at the feet of the rabbi. Says the people that were pressed in upon him to hear the word of God. He passes right by them and goes to the boats, to the roughnecks. These are the guys who like come late to church on purpose or not at all. Or like these are the neighbors that are always surprised when there are cars out here on Bivens on Sunday morning because they just don't have their lives organized around the fact that people worship God on Sunday morning sometimes, right? These are the people without God on their radar. And that's where Jesus goes, straight to them. That's where the, the word of God is being proclaimed, not for the people who are ready, but for the people who are not ready. And so Jesus then takes liberty to board their boat. If we remember the movie Captain Phillips, this might be sort of a I'm the captain now situation for Jesus. And Simon recognizes this and proclaims him master, which might be something like captain of the ship. And so maybe Jesus and Simon like sort of recognize each other. Maybe they were acquainted in this hometown. Maybe they kind of recognize each other, but never really knew each other that well growing up. 
but little did Simon know his whole life was about to change. And Jesus tells him, get in the boat, pick up your nets that you're washing because you're done with a long day's work, you're disappointed, take your nets, go, keep going, and put them in deep. And warily, Simon listens to him. Maybe he's thinking, what's the use, but also what's the harm at this point? Like, it couldn't get much worse. <laughs> and then they start to haul in the nets, and they almost sink themselves. This sea harvest is so plentiful, and the workers are so few that Simon then calls his buddies, notably those fiery Zebedee boys, John and James, uh, James and John, and he says, I need help. <laughs> We're going to sink if you don't help us. So here's some of that qualitative logic coming into play. It's not that we shouldn't pay attention to quantity. It's right in the forefront of the story. They're about to sink with how many fish they got. Sometimes good things happen when you are doing God stuff, but sometimes they really don't. But in, in this case, this haul is good news for them. It puts food on their table and in their bellies, money in their pockets. But if anything, it shows the, the massive abundance that was already around them, that was right under their feet, right under their boat. Jesus didn't so much as like magically generate these fish on the spot, but he pointed them to it and he tapped them into what was already there. That's the quality of what Jesus is doing is more important even than the quantity. Sometimes when we walk with Jesus, nets will be bursting. Sometimes we'll be pulling up like cans and tires from the bottom of the lake, but there is always more going on than we notice or that we're prepared for at any given time. And Jesus gives us the courage to go out further and to dig deeper than we might have thought we should have before. Jesus gives us that imagination and that stamina and that ability. Sometimes Jesus is exactly the key to figuring out what we've neglected to see or what we can't realize. And this is an epiphany of both what we need, but we didn't know that we already had, right? So part of Simon's epiphany comes when he realizes not only what he needed, not only what he now has with all this fish that he's come into, but part of Simon's main epiphany is realizing who he is. Simon realizes in Jesus' presence, maybe for the first time, or at least for the first time in a while, who Simon actually is. I love that there's this subtle progression throughout the passage. You can go back and look at it, maybe look at a couple different translations, because sometimes translators do different things. But when, when Jesus talks to Simon Peter, Luke keeps calling him Simon throughout the whole incident. Except for one time, there's a subtle shift it's, it's Simon, it's Simon, it's Simon, and then it's Simon Peter. And that happens right at the moment when Simon is overwhelmed with the catch and falls down at Jesus' feet saying, leave me, Lord, for I am a sinner. I think that's pretty cool. I, I think that maybe this is a little foreshadowing to who Simon would become when Jesus would give him a, a name change, and a title change, when he would become Peter the rock upon which the church would be built. And Simon, this roughneck fisherman, who still has all of his rough edges, is becoming someone new in the midst of someone old because he's met Jesus. 
You see, Simon was noticed by Jesus. Simon was happened upon by the work of God and ushered into it. This included his resources, his boat, his nets. It included his expertise, what he knew how to do and what he was trying to do to make a living. It included his frustrations at the end of the day with empty nets. And he was called to partner with Jesus, to listen to Jesus and to partner with what Jesus wanted. And then Simon Peter shows up for the first time. Simon's been on the scene. Simon Peter shows up when he worships, when he repents, when he falls at Jesus' feet, when he becomes undone. You see, he's not, we don't have any evidence that Jesus like talked Simon Peter into his sinfulness. I think it just kind of dawned on him in light of both the success and his inadequacy. He becomes who he is and who he will be, and he is amazed, and he calls others into amazement and participation. This is a hint and a foretaste. Jesus still calls him Simon after that, though. So we have Simon, 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 Peter, Simon, Simon, Simon. Jesus still knows him for who he has been. When you encounter Jesus, he doesn't erase the hard drive and start over. He doesn't whitewash or trash who Simon has been, but enlist him into something new and makes him new in the making new. Simon is called into something that's way out of his depth, and he's, he's being, becoming a new person in the process. It starts somewhere. It starts right there. I think something similar happens in the, the call of the prophet Isaiah. That's one of our lectionary texts for the day. And Isaiah crumbles in the presence of God, realizing the scale of his own inadequacy. And isn't this what often, often happens to us? In Isaiah 6, Isaiah just falls apart. He says, mourn for me, I'm ruined. I'm a man with unclean lips, and I live among people with unclean lips. Yet I've seen the King, the Lord of heavenly forces, and then one of the winged creatures flew to Isaiah holding a glowing coal that he'd taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched his mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is gone and your sin is removed. And I heard the, vo the Lord's voice saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah volunteers, says, I'm here. Send me. We actually get a glimpse of who God is and how big of a task is before us or maybe we just feel like we aren't enough or we don't have enough. And you know what? In some sense, we're right about all of those inclinations. Isaiah isn't scolded for falling apart. He, he, he's right. Sin diminishes us. Sin enslaves us. It turns us in upon ourselves. But God, <laughs> but God heals us. God fills us with God's spirit. God resurrects dead, ruined things. God turns us up and turns us out into the world. There's no one better to speak to a people with unclean lips and hard hearts than someone who has identified all of that in themselves. <laughs> in fact, you might argue it is impossible to be heard by such people if you are not like Isaiah and Peter, right? Their sin, our sin, is not a barrier. It's a 
qualification for the daunting task of being sent by God. They didn't volunteer, they were sought out. We mentioned this dynamic happening over and over with our leaders here locally. This happens on a grand scale, and this happens locally here. The, the best qualification I know for our leaders are that they don't think that they have enough right now because they don't, but God's going to provide it if we follow and walk with God and, and trust. And so now these people who were sought, now they will do the seeking. Simon will do it through what he is and already knows. His regular job gets transfigured. He was a fisher for fish, and now he's a fisher for human beings. Like I think about Mary in this sort of call. She doesn't necessarily fall apart, but she looks incredulous that the angel would come to her and ask her to become a mother, and she turns from a mother of a human to the mother of a new humanity in Jesus, right? Jesus is taking who she is and what she is doing and, and making it new. Uh, Martin Luther King talks about this kind of transfiguration of our work. Um, not just um, being that the work will change, but that our vision of our work might change when we are laboring with God in the kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. He says that we, we need to discover what we are made for and what we are called to do in life, and we must set out to do it with all of our strength and all of our power that we can muster up. It says individuals should seek to do their lives work so well that the living, the dead, or the unborn couldn't do it any better. And this is the key part, I think. He says, we have to see our work as something with cosmic significance. Think about your work. You might, you might cringe and think, oh, he doesn't know my work, right? says, think of your work as something with cosmic significance. No matter how small it happens to be, no matter how insignificant we tend to feel it is, we must come to see that it has great significance and that it is for the upbuilding of humanity. And then he goes on to say, so to carry it to one extreme, if it falls to one's lot to be a street sweeper, he should um, at that moment seek to, street, to sweep streets like Michelangelo carved marble or like Raphael painted pictures. Should seek to sweep streets like Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should seek to sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth had to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper. And he swept his job well. There's a new vision and a transformed and a transfigured vision for this ordinary work that we're doing. I think this is all really inspiring. Unless we think that the core of this message is only that we should just keep our heads down and work harder and, and do whatever tasks that we're called to do. The other thing that I think is happening here when Jesus seeks out and calls Simon Peter at the seashore is this wider calling. You might even call it like an election that is happening here. Maybe that's a scary word to you. You came up in a church where like election means predestined for heaven and hell and there's all these fancy theologies. Most of the time the gospel stories sort out wheat and tear sheep and goats kind of for themselves. But we see in the story how magnetic and how exponential Jesus' calling is. Jesus calls Simon, and then Simon calls his friends. 
We might call these full nets of fish like a fellowship hall, right? Like H-A-U-L. It is a fellowship hall because being with Jesus and listening to Jesus and following Jesus in this world only happens with others. Only happens with others. In, in Church Dogmatics, Karl Barth even like mentions this, that all the four Gospels have the, these stories of the sea, seaside and Jesus calling these fishermen to be fishers of men. He says, they all happen at the beginning of Jesus' ministry because the Gospel writers, and especially Luke, don't want the idea of a like solo, heroic Jesus doing ministry by himself to solidify it in our minds. So from the start, Jesus is anointed in the spirit to preach good news to the poor and bind up the brokenhearted and release captives and give sight to the blind and emancipate prisoners and reset the debts and institute rest in a time of jubilee. And it happens with help. If this is Jesus' style, it means it's ours too. That we are, we are in this together. We are with others in this good work. One missionary theologian reminds us that salvation never comes to us from the skylight in the sky, but rather through the neighbor at the door. For Simon, that neighbor is Jesus. And for James and John, it's their hysteric friend Simon, calling from a sinking ship because it's so chock full of everything they'd been hoping for and working for, but unable to attain for themselves. Into that, Jesus comforts. And Jesus confirms, Jesus says, don't be afraid. You're now fishing for people. Don't be afraid. They left everything and they followed Jesus. And they followed Jesus. They didn't know it as Christianity at the time. They were making Christianity happen. But... Stanley Harawatz quips that Christianity ain't possible without friends, and I think that's true from the very start of this Christianity that they're, that they're stepping into. It's not possible without friends. That's precisely the shape of Jesus' ministry and calling. Jesus has first called us friends in this strange, messy arrangement of fishing for fish and fishing for people. He's called us alongside friends also for this work. Y'all are friends in this work or are becoming friends. That's what we're doing every week. So don't tell me there's no ways to make friends in Durham, right? Come and share food at the table. Blend your voices in song. Even if you have a terrible voice, listen to someone else's who's better than yours. And, and we are friends in this together, maybe for no other reason than because of Jesus. And we needn't be afraid, not because there isn't anything to fear. This world is plenty scary, and this task is plenty hard. There's plenty to fear. But we needn't fear because Jesus is with us. We're not alone. And because Jesus has given us friends, we're not alone. Jesus models this pattern and way of doing ministry. Jesus' call to follow is a call to friendship. It's a way of doing life that is with God, with others. With God, with others. 
it's hard, but it's not some sort of solo heroic endeavor. Our spiritual lives are personal, but they are never not interpersonal also. They are never not involved with our neighbor. We are always linking up with friends. Friends with strange histories and personalities and varying degrees of character and skill, but hopefully towards the same goal, with the same resources that we're drawing on in the same spirit, in the same promise that Jesus makes us all. I am with you until the end of the age. Now who will go for us? Here I am, send me. And Jesus responds, I am with you. Will you all pray with me? Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that we are not alone. You are with us. You have come to us as a friend, and you've called us friends. And you've given us friends, and you've united us to this big and growing family. This family called the church throughout time, across different places, and especially in this place. Lord, continue to grow us into deep friends, reliable friends, and friends walking with you together. Thanks for giving us everything that we need for this journey. We pray all this in your name. Amen.